The Lord's Supper, Part 2 The third talk in a series entitled What We Believe, Answers to Questions, was presented by Ron Julian on April 1st, 2001 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2001. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. A brief break occurs in the middle of the following recording. It is the result of the original audio tape switching to the second side. Technical difficulties resulted in the loss of the first few minutes of this talk. Coming to Moses, calling him out as a prophet, sending him to the Jews who were in slavery in Egypt, bringing them out of slavery through a whole miraculous series of events. Ten plagues brought upon the Egyptians until finally the Pharaoh relents and lets them go. The miraculous parting of the Red Sea so that they can escape the armies of Pharaoh. The manna in the wilderness and so on. All of this represents this incredible event in the history of Israel. Most of the time, even in the Bible, what we see is God acting behind the scenes. He occasionally comes out and says a few things. He, he, he reveals himself to Abraham a little bit. Um, he, he gives visions to um, Joseph along the way. I mean, there are these places where God actually says something, but most of the time what we see is him acting through the circumstances of history without much commentary. It, the Bible makes it clear that God brought Israel to Egypt to rescue them from a famine that was going to be uh, going through the whole region. But for the most part, you see it working out through circumstances. His, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, and they end up accomplishing something different than what they intended. Uh, you look at all of these events happening, and at the end, you look at it and say, God worked through all that to bring all of these things about. But if there weren't a few explicit statements from God along the way about what was going on, you could very easily step back and just look at that and say, well, that's just the way things happened. The events surrounding the Exodus are different. In this situation, God is stepping into the circumstances, revealing his mind to Moses and saying, this is what's going to happen. You watch. And that's what happens. Events that are not just improbable, but almost unimaginable. I mean, the parting of the Red Sea and all of that. Um, to say, here comes the army. What are we going to do? And Moses says, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to walk over to the other side, and they do. This is an incredible act of God at a crucial time in their history. Because this is such a central event, this is God stepping in to rescue Israel from slavery and to fulfill his promise to them that he had a, a land, a place, 
for the descendants of Abraham. Because this is such a big event, this is something that God wanted them to remember. And I think you could actually point at much that is involved in the the religion that God set up with the Jews that had to do with reminding them of what it is he had done. Remembering this event, the incredible deliverance that he had brought about, was a very central part of the Jewish religion. Now, I want to read to you uh, Exodus chapter 12, uh, parts of it anyway. This is before the events of the 10th plague. You'll remember the 10th plague is the death of the firstborn children, firstborn males in Egypt. And before this happens, we read this in Exodus 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb." Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. But on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And on the first day you shall have a holy assembly, and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread, 
For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses, for whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Uh, yes, I'll keep going. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. And it will come about when you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he has promised that you shall observe this rite. And it will come about when your children will say to you, what does this rite mean to you? that you shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. Mm, yes, and I think, I think I'll stop at that. Okay, so here is this very important ceremony that God has instituted. They start it at this time when the the final plague is coming over the Egyptians to be rescued from the death that is coming over the land. They are to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the lintel across and the two doorposts. So, when do they do this? They do it once a year. It's a seven-day festival, and it begins with the this meal involving the butchering of the lamb, the blood, the eating the lamb, eating unleavened bread, and having the bitter herbs. The lamb, obviously, is a picture of sacrifice, a sacrifice made to preserve life, to rescue from death. And when their children ask, what is this about? They are to tell them, this is a Passover sacrifice that is remembering the time when God passed us over and did not bring death upon us. It's also a celebratory meal. It's not just the sacrifice of the lamb, but they also take the lamb then and eat it. So it provides sustenance and nourishment as well as the sacrifice to ward off the angel of death. Now, as I understand it, it's a little bit hard to put the picture together, but... As things went on, God changed this a little bit, and the only place where the lamb could be sacrificed was at the temple. So now you don't have people, all of them in their various homes, butchering a lamb and eating it, but you had to go to the temple, and the priests would butcher the lamb, and if I'm following what happened, instead of people putting the blood on their doorposts anymore, the blood would be poured on the altar. 
Now, I, I read different things, and I may, I'm not entirely sure whether they eliminated the blood on the doorpost part or not. It sounded like that's what it was saying. But at any rate, this festival comes to be associated very closely with the temple, the sacrifice of the lamb there and the blood on the altar there. There was the unleavened bread as a part of the ceremony. Probably the situation here, what we're talking about, I'm not a bread baker, but those of you who make sourdough bread <clears throat> are familiar with the process where you hold out a bit of dough that sits and uh, and work it into the next batch, and you keep doing that so that you have basically this starter that that is becoming... What does it do? What what is exactly that's happening to sourdough bread? Is it fermenting, or what? What exactly is happening to the dough? Is it fermentation? I think it is. Okay, so rather than we're not talking so much about yeast in this situation, I think, but we're talking about that that fermented bread that keeps going. You keep the you use it in the next batch, and you save some away, and then you use it in the next. Once a year, they are to get rid of all of that and to start fresh so that the bread that they bake is unleavened. Nothing carries over. So the idea of starting fresh and having nothing carry over from before, I think is very much a part of the symbolism here. This was a ceremonial meal, and this is very important. He says, this day will be a memorial to you a remembrance. This is a day when you remember what God did in delivering you from Egypt. And you shall celebrate it as as a feast to the Lord. Your children are going to ask you what it means, and you're going to remind them of what God did in the past, the sacrifice of the Lamb and the life that that brought, the deliverance from death and the rescue from slavery that God accomplished in the Exodus. Eventually, the ritual of the Passover came to include um, several cups of wine. There were, now, what's difficult is what we know about the Passover at the time of Jesus, the way it was practiced, we know from later Jewish writings and it's always some question as to what exactly was going on at the time Jesus was doing things. But the later Jewish writings tell us that there were four cups of wine uh, at various points in the meal, and that the cups corresponded to a passage in Exodus 6.6, which says, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and then there are these four things that God says that he will do for them. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. Number three, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And number four, then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And these four things sort of move us incrementally out of slavery and into redemption and freedom as God's people. That's the picture in Exodus. And that the Jews at the probably at this time practiced Passover with these four cups, each cup intended to represent one of these promises of God. <clears throat> so, 
we have the Passover as this ceremonial meal with various elements in the meal which are meant to represent various things, to remind the people what God had done in the past. Now we come to the upper room where, I'm not going to go into the details here, we can talk about it afterwards if you want to, but I would say, in my mind, I am entirely convinced that the meal that the disciples and Jesus ate together on the night before he was the night he was betrayed and the night before he went to the cross, um, the meal that they ate together was a Passover meal. I want us to look at Luke 22. I'm going to concentrate on this version from Luke. Um, there are a few little differences that we could talk about in Matthew and Mark, but I don't think we will go into that. In Luke 22, starting with verse 14, And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. In Luke alone, we see this picture of a cup, another cup than the one that we're going to talk about in a minute. This is probably the first of the four cups that were used in the Passover. They referred to it as the cup of blessing. And so here in the Passover ceremony, Jesus gives them the cup, as they would have been very familiar with. But as he gives it out, he makes this comment, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So he's using this opportunity to communicate something significant to them about what it is that's about to happen. Their lives are about to be interrupted with this very cataclysmic event of his death. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. First of all, we're in a Passover meal here. This bread that he takes and gives thanks over, this is the unleavened bread that was a part of the Passover ceremony. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, this is the place where, if you're familiar at all with church history, Jesus says, this is my body, and for the last 2,000 years, we have been running riot with this. I mean, we have gone every possible direction you can imagine with what it is he said here. And we, I mean, it is not, it is not a an attractive thing about the history of the church. But the fact is that there are many, many people in the name of Christ who have put people to death because they had the wrong opinion about what Jesus meant when he said this. So this is, this is a big deal in the history of things. This statement that he has made has had a lot of ramifications. The question that we come to here is, together, what did he mean? 
What is he getting at? What did he want us to do? Well, I think there are a couple of things that we have to keep in mind. First of all, I would point to this word, do this in remembrance of me. That word, remembrance, in remembrance, in memorial. This is the same idea that we find in Exodus. Moses says the Passover meal is a memorial of what God had done when he rescued them from Egypt. So here is Jesus talking to a group of Jewish men who have been involved in the Passover ceremony their entire lives. They have been involved in a ceremony where they have eaten bitter herbs, they have taken the unleavened bread, they have eaten the lamb, they have these cups, each of these cups has a blessing attached to it, and this entire meal is a ceremony, a memorial, where they are remembering what God has done in the past. In fact, it is very likely that they would have used words. I mean, we see the the children asking the question, what does this mean? And then somebody answers it. Well, we know that the ceremony came to be very, very explicit, where various questions are asked, and the leader, the host of the Passover, answers the questions. You know, the bitter herbs represent our bitter bondage in Egypt and that sort of thing. So here at a memorial meal where every element of the meal is intended to be symbolic of something that reminds us of what God had done in the Passover, in these events in Egypt, Jesus comes along and he breaks the unleavened bread and he says, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. I think... There is no possible way that a Jewish man sitting there at that time in the middle of a Passover meal could understand him to be saying anything else but the outrageous thing and saying, this meal, this Passover meal that has always been a memorial, a remembrance of what God did in rescuing the Jews from Egypt is now a memorial to me. It is my body that this bread represents. In this meal, you have been used to people saying, you know, this cup represents this and these herbs represent this. Well, I'm here to tell you now that this meal has taken on a different significance. The bread that we are eating in the Passover now is my body. It is not deliverance from Egypt. It is my body. When he says, this is my body... You know, we, we in modern days, because of the example of our last president, have gotten to sort of joke about uh, asking questions about what is means. But the fact is that the question of what is means is something that has preoccupied the church for the last 2,000 years. When Jesus says, this is my body, Martin Luther, who is one of my heroes, but not because of this, Um, he argued, look, it says, this is my body. Is means is, is what he says. So that means that the bread is his body. I mean, you want to touch his body? Touch the bread. This is it. This is his body. That's what is means. 
Zwingli, who was another one of the reformers, argued, it says here it's a, it's a remembrance. This is a memorial meal like the Passover. Zwingli is my hero because of that, because I think he got it right. Martin Luther, in later years, Zwingli was involved in a, in a civil war that was going on and died. And Martin Luther later wrote that he was deeply sorry that Zwingli had died in that um, battle because he was robbed of the opportunity to repent of his view of the Eucharist. And he was probably in hell right now because of what he believed, that, that the, the bread in the communion meal was merely a memorial and was not literally the body of Christ. That's how seriously Martin Luther took it. That's how seriously everybody has taken it as we have gone along through history. That when it says, this is my body, we have decided that in some mystical sense, this bread is the body of Christ. And it, because of that, it has magical powers. You know, in Catholicism today, it is the practice of the priest to take the wafer and put it on the tongue of each person who receives it. Do you know why that is? Because in earlier days, people thought, well, naturally enough, this is the body of Christ. This is the magical body of Christ that gives life. They would take it and they would hide it. They wouldn't eat it when they were supposed to eat it. They would take it away and they would plant it in their garden so that their, the magical powers in the bread would give life to their crops. And so the priests, when they figured out that this is what people were doing, they started putting on their tongue so they had to watch them eat it right there so that they couldn't take it away and, and use it for some other purpose. Well, I think it's very simple. Just as the Passover had always been a memorial meal, when Jesus says, this is my body, he doesn't mean anything any more complicated than now this bread represents my body. What you're remembering when you eat this bread is not what God did in Egypt, which is certainly worth remembering, but something bigger. This memorial celebration will be celebrating your deliverance from death by means of my body. That's what he's saying. It's very important. He's coming along and saying, what God did then pales in importance with what he is doing now. Yes, deliverance from Egypt was a mighty act of God, but that was only just a hint, a foretaste of the true deliverance that God meant to bring about. And what I am about to do, he's saying, the death that I am about to die, is going to bring about the true deliverance, the deliverance from death and judgment and guilt into eternal life. That's what you need to remember from now on. When you get together and think about the mighty acts of God, the mightiest act of God in history is no longer the parting of the Red Sea and the deliverance of the Israelites from the angel of death. The mightiest act of God in history is Jesus dying on the cross and the resurrection then that accompanies it. That, that is the key event. And that's what you will be remembering now when you partake of this ceremony. So this is my body does not 
impart any mystical significance or transubstantiation or anything like that to the bread. He is saying, in this memorial meal, what you are remembering now is what I am about to do. Ultimately, this is both a sober but a joyful thing. Just as in the Passover was a celebration of deliverance, but it, it had to do with a deliverance from death, and it did involve the death of the Egyptian children. It's not a light thing, but ultimately deliverance was the result. The same thing is true of what Jesus is saying here. Ultimately, this meal is a celebration. God has done a great thing. He did it at great cost, but it is a great thing that he has done. Now, it's interesting. You'll notice... We're talking about a Passover meal here. And we're talking about Jesus' body, his broken body, his death, which delivers us from death. If you're going to go to the Passover meal and pick something to represent his body, his death, which provides deliverance from death, why didn't he pick the lamb? The lamb dies. His blood is shed and his blood provides deliverance from death. Isn't that what we're talking about here? And I would say, yes, it is. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians makes an explicit comment along those lines. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. He he is the Passover lamb. So why didn't, why isn't a lamb a part of this ceremony? Well, I don't know. The thought that comes to me at this point is that the lamb was very much tied up with the regulations and the ceremonies of the temple. If he had made the lamb the, the thing that represented his blood, then it would have been kind of like saying the temple regulations, the temple sacrifices are going to continue to go on, but now when you eat the lamb that has been sacrificed at the temple, it's going to represent me. I don't think that's the way he wanted to do it. Because his sacrifice of himself once for all is the sacrifice. As Hebrews makes it clear, the sacrifices in the temple never really accomplished true deliverance. So rather than taking the lamb, which is a part of the the cultus of Israel, He takes another part of the meal, the bread, the unleavened bread, and says, this is my body. It's not that he's denying any association with the lamb. I think we have to understand very much that he's taking the Passover ceremony and associating it with his death. There's no question that the New Testament equates Jesus in a very real sense with the lamb Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And uh, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And, and language like that, which shows that the New Testament really does, I think, associate Jesus with the Lamb. But in the ceremony, as he set it up, he didn't have us eating lamb. He has us eating bread. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Well... It's likely that this cup that he has taken here is the third of the four cups 
in the Passover ceremony. The third of them is the cup of redemption. Remember, if if we're right that what it says in the Mishnah applies back to the time of, of Jesus, what it says in the later Jewish writings is what was happening at the time of Jesus, then the third cup would have been associated with the third of the promises from Exodus 6. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And if that's true, I mean, we, I can't say dogmatically that it's true, but it's likely that it's true. And if that's so, it's very fitting that Jesus has taken the cup that they understood to represent the redemption from slavery in Egypt, being redeemed, bought out away from the Egyptians and made God's people. Um, Jesus is taking that cup to represent his blood, his death, redeeming us, rescuing us from the judgment and eternal death that we have earned for ourselves and making us God's people. Very fitting that he would do that. He uses this language, the cup poured out for you, which is very much the language of offerings, the pouring out of blood on the altar and so on. And he describes this as the new covenant in his blood. There's so much that we could say about that. Let me just say that it seems to me that the Passover was very much a part of the Old Covenant. It was kind of the inauguration of this time. Moses had come to the people, had delivered them from Egypt through the mighty acts of God, had given them a law, and the Passover was a commemoration of the beginning of this time. Later on, Jeremiah told of a time that God would make a new covenant with Israel. And what made this covenant new is that this time he was going to forgive their sins. He was going to overlook their rebellion against him and he was going to write his law on their hearts. Well, what Jesus' blood is doing, what his death on the cross is doing, is making it possible for the thing that Jeremiah had described to come about. He is bringing about the forgiveness of sins that Jeremiah had promised and thus the writing of God's law on our heart through the Spirit, which is also what Jesus had promised. I think Jeremiah's promise of a new covenant has one more specific aspect to it. It's a promise to Israel that one day they would be restored and redeemed. And that promise still remains to be fulfilled in the life of Israel. But in order for that promise to be fulfilled, God has to forgive their sins. And how is it that he is forgiving their sins? He's doing it through the blood sacrifice of the Messiah, the propitiation before God that he accepts as an offering for their sins. So Jesus is bringing about this new covenant that had been promised, one that was based on forgiveness and acceptance in spite of failure. Okay, so what do we have here then? Jesus is taking a Jewish memorial celebratory meal, which was intended to celebrate and remind them of the most important event in Israel's history, the deliverance from Egypt, the time when God 
pulled back the curtains, stepped in in an obvious and mighty way, and rescued them. Jesus is taking this ceremony and reapplying it to himself. Now what we are remembering in the Passover meal, is what he says, is the true deliverance, the deliverance from condemnation and eternal death, which is the real deliverance. What God did in rescuing Israel from Egypt was just like the shadow. You look at that and you say, wow, God is pretty amazing, pretty powerful, pretty merciful, but nothing like what he has shown here. Jesus, by the way, you'll notice, is executing a great deal of authority to come along and take a ceremony instituted by Moses at the command of God, which the Jews had been practicing for, I don't know, 1,200 years, something like that, I mean, a long time. Coming along and saying, you know that thing that God commanded and that for 1,200 years you've been doing? Now you're going to do it different, because I say so. It's going to be some, going to mean something else. Why? Because up until now, nothing more significant has ever happened in God's dealings with his people than the deliverance he brought about in Egypt. But now something bigger has happened. And that's what this ceremony is all about. Jesus, in doing this, has done nothing more than reinterpret the Passover. The disciples would have understood him. It would have been a very shocking thing, but they would have understood what he's saying. Once a year, when you Jewish followers of mine celebrate the Passover, instead of primarily remembering the Exodus, now I want you to remember me and what I have done. You want to remember that at the beginning, there was not this big break between the Christians and the Jews. Many Jewish believers in Christ were still Jews, and they still would have gone to synagogues. We know that they did, and participated in the rituals of the synagogues. They would have continued to participate in the rituals of Jewish life. But each year when they came to the Passover, they when they're eating the unleavened bread and having the cups and the bitter herbs and all of that stuff, they're looking at that and they're thinking, I know what this is really about. This is about Jesus and his death. That's where we are here. This ceremony that Jesus has instituted is a reinterpretation of the Passover so that it is now a remembrance of something else. Now, this is not the last of the information that we have about what we call communion. There's one other piece of evidence that we have to consider, and that's what we will look at next week. Because Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, makes it clear that he has passed on a tradition to the Corinthian church, and presumably to all the churches that he founded, that has something to do with following this ceremony that Jesus institutes here. But it is not a Passover meal, and in fact, it's primarily being done by Gentiles. So that's the last part of the puzzle that we have to put together in, in understanding what 
this thing is. But what I wanted to communicate to you today is I am very much convinced that the move that we have made in the church at various times to say communion is a sacrament, a, a religious ritual that we go through by which the grace of God is imparted to us because we are mystically eating the bread and mystically uh, uh, eating his body and mystically drinking his blood is a profound misunderstanding of what Jesus is doing. And part of the reason that it happened, I'm convinced, is because we as Gentile Christians so early got cut off from Jews that we lost track of the Jewish roots of our faith. I think it's just impossible, it's virtually impossible for me to imagine that the disciples, Jewish men who had been practicing the Passover all their life, could be involved in a Passover meal where Jesus reinterprets the elements of the meal, that they would understand it in any other way but what he exactly says. This now is a remembrance of his body and blood given to establish a new covenant with God. That's what this is about. What establishes the covenant is his real death. What the meal is about is like Passover was, a remembrance of what it is he had done. For us to go in the direction of, of seeing it as, as this I mean, none of us here, I think, probably, or may I don't want to speak for everybody, probably most of us here at this point have moved far enough in a Protestant direction that we are not inclined to think that the what Jesus instituted here is the practice that's happening in the Catholic Church right now. Um, the idea of the impartation of grace and the priest, you know, blessing the holy food and all of this kind of stuff. Um, but most of us, if we have participated in Passover, I mean in the Lord's Supper, have probably gotten the idea. I mean, we come to church, we do it as a, as a part of a worship service in a church, we pass out the little pieces of cracker and we sit there, somebody says some solemn words over them and we eat it like we're eating a magic pill and we have this little this teeny little thing and we eat it and then we have these teeny little cups and we drink it like it's like it's magic juice and we and we think you know there's this thing happening well all i'm trying to communicate here is that what jesus did was he took this is a meal passover was a celebratory meal they were eating dinner and when they when they ate the bread, I sincerely doubt that that they had this teeny little wafer and they ate it and sat there and and felt mystical stuff happening. I mean, this is a meal. This is a celebratory meal where you have unleavened bread and you have wine and you have. I mean, there were four cups of wine and you have a lamb and it was roasted and everybody i mean this was like this was good everybody looked forward to this because this was a this was a big meal part of what makes the ritual significant is we associate a ritual with a meal because a meal is a you know you know it's like 
Thanksgiving dinner. If you think about what Thanksgiving dinner is like in our culture, that's what the Passover was like. It's like, oh boy, I've been waiting all year. We're having this great meal. And associated with it is the idea, just as we often do at Thanksgiving, commemorate that we owe a great debt of gratitude to God. Well, that's what Passover was. It was a meal where you associated it with things that God had done. This is a time when we celebrate by eating and we remember what God has done in the past. So, at a minimum, we have gone very, very far from where Jesus started. Now, you understand, I, when I say this, it's not because I'm a purist, and I say, so, you know, everybody has been doing it wrong all this time, and we are the true church, and we're going to have a, an orgy, and that's going to really do it right. That's not what I mean. But what I'm saying is, if, if we think somehow that what we have done in, in saying, there are many people who would look at us here, and they would say, you're not a church. And the reason you're not a church is, a church is where you go to get the sacraments. A church is the place where you take communion and you get baptized. And if you're not doing that, you're not a church. Well, it's that idea somehow that, that, that there is this ritual that imparts grace mystically that we have to uh, participate in. I'm just saying that's very far from what Jesus was doing. What the Jews knew was a meal in which they remembered what God had done. What Jesus is doing is saying, this meal now ought to be about me because what I have done is more significant than what God did in Egypt. Now, there's still more to talk about because what Paul has to say to in the picture is going to complicate it a little bit. But uh, so far... If all we had to go on was Jesus, what I would say is, if we wanted to do what it is that he's talking about, then it looks like what we ought to do is, when we have Passover each year, we ought to talk about Jesus instead of Egypt. And the problem is, we're not Jews. We're Gentiles. And with that, we'll see next week how you solve that problem. Um, So... Yes, let's take a little time for whatever comments or questions you might have. Paul has got his hand up. Oh, thanks, Roger. I think I remember from uh, Catholic education and Sister Roach that what happens here is that um, Christ says that he is no longer going to drink fruit of the vine in 18. Mm-hmm. And then two verses later, he takes another glass and passes it out. Right. That it's no longer wine, that it's something else. Right. right. What do you do with that? Is it that the kingdom of God has already come, that it wasn't wine to begin with? Well, the, um, I don't exactly know how to answer that question because there are several possibilities for what he could mean. Um, the simplest one, it seems to me, is um, in the first part, where he says, um, he says, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Um, 
one way to take what he's saying there is that he himself is not partaking of the Passover meal that he is distributing, that they are eating it, but he isn't. I mean, in fact, that's what it sounds like. He says, take and drink this among yourselves because I am not going to drink again until the kingdom of God comes. I don't, I don't think that he means by this, um, you know, that if somewhere along the line somebody had slipped him a sip of wine somewhere along the line that his prediction had come not come true or something like that. He's not... He, he, what he's talking about is my time of celebrating, my time of eating and drinking and living a normal life is over. I am about to go to my death. It has already begun. So, if... If I was pushed to give an answer to that, I think it's not a problem because not only does he, I mean, he doesn't drink either of the cups. So, so the, it's not that the next one has to not be fruit of the vine because he didn't drink it either. That's how I would answer it right now, I think. I haven't given a great deal of thought to that. Um, but another possibility, even if he did drink of them, um, to take him as saying, See this cup? I'm not going to drink any more. That doesn't have to be what he meant. He could very easily mean this meal is the last meal that I'm going to take. And so the whole, everything that accompanies it could be his last meal and, and, uh, and it would equally make sense. I'm just inclined to think that, that that first one, what he's saying in essence is that he's setting himself, himself apart in this in that he's the host of the meal, but he's not himself uh, partaking of it. It is true, many of the arguments that that are made concerning this stuff have the quality of that, that kind of argument that you're talking about there, which ultimately, I, I just think they're misguided in the way they're approaching the Bible. They're treating it as if it's kind of this... this intricate religious code that we have to kind of put together in just the right way. I, he's just talking. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the, he's talking to guys who understood what he meant. And I don't think it's that hard to figure it out. Okay, Logan? I drifted a bit, so forgive me if you well, covered this. Well, so did this. I. <laughs> okay. Um, in the records of the Acts of the Apostles, they frequently talk about we shared the Lord's meal they got together and then shared the Lord's meal and then went on into something. What's that? Well, now, I'm familiar with various places where it talked about how they broke bread together. Um, and the problem is, uh, we'd have to look at specific ones, but <laughs> let, let me give you an example here. I was reading an article, it's in the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, about the Lord's Supper. And this article, the thing that was striking to me is that the author assumed that the entire preoccupation of the New Testament regarding this, regarding everything really, but regarding this issue in particular, was liturgy and ritual. I mean, everywhere, you know, 
later on, we're going to read the passage from 1 Corinthians. And every single thing about what Paul says, he says, examine yourselves. And so uh, eat the bread and drink the cup. Well, they've turned that into, okay, clearly in the ritual that Paul has set up, there are several points. There is a point in the ritual at which everyone stops and examines themselves, and then they eat after that. Well, if you read 1 Corinthians in context, as we'll look at it next week, there's no reason to go in that direction. When Paul's, well, I mean, we'll talk about it, but there's a much simpler and straightforward way of understanding what Paul means when he says examine yourselves. It, it doesn't mean that he was setting up a ritual. Now's the point in the ritual where we do self-examination. There's just no reason to think that. Unless you've decided that his every word on the subject has to be establishing the, the features of the ritual. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to to something like a phrase like breaking bread. At various times, Christians in Acts are described as breaking bread together. Well, that article that I read said, okay, this doesn't seem to be the Eucharist, and so this seems to be another ritual that they went through. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, it's the ritual of eating. I mean, you know, it's a funny thing, but people back then have to eat or they die. And so do we. And you know the phrase you, w that people used when they talked about eating? It, they called it breaking bread. I mean, it doesn't have to be, when it talks about how they broke bread together, that they got together and, and chanted while somebody broke pieces in, and they were in a mystical ceremony or something. I mean, they were eating. They broke bread. When you, I mean, you have a big piece of bread and you break it and you pass out and you give people pieces. Instead, I mean, they didn't slice it the way we do. It didn't come pre-sliced. They just <laughs> baked it, and they broke it. I mean, that's... Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible that it was meant to be some sort of a ceremony, but there's no, there's no reason to assume that it was, except that we have gotten the idea from church history that any time a Christian puts something in his mouth, it must be have some mystical... Meaning, I mean, in the Bible. Anytime somebody does something at all in the Bible, it must be to establish some ritual. I am amazed, frankly, that we as Christians do not have ceremonies like we would all come in and go over to the door and open it because Jesus said, I am the door. I mean, why don't we have... I mean, have you thought about it? We're falling down on the job. That door is Jesus. He said, I am the door. And is means is. So, I mean, why, why don't we do that? What I'm amazed is that we don't do it because we are so ready to jump in and say anything that anybody says about anything must be to establish a ritual because what else would it be good for? So, I think that... I am inclined to think that most of the occasions in Acts that have to do with that are not intended to be ceremonial meals, but they are simply Christians getting together to eat together. Now, they, I, did they pray when they got together to eat? Very likely. Did they see it as being a special meal because they were eating together? That's quite possible. But I don't think that we have any reason to take the significance of it any farther than that. But 
like I said, it would, I, we'd have to look at some specifics to deal with that. But see, you guys can see where I'm coming from with this. You know, when we we talk about Paul's thing next week, I mean, you can always kind of, you can already kind of tell where I'm going to be going. I'll bet. And when we talk about baptism and that kind of stuff, I mean, you're starting to get the drift of the direction that I would take with this stuff. I think that we need to try to understand in context what it is they're talking about and not jump to conclusions that their preoccupation was with ritual. Now, we'll talk next week more about this. Do I believe that there is value in the kind of memorial celebration that the Passover was and that Jesus was talking about here? Yes, because we need to remember the great thing that God has done for us. We are too inclined to forget. So I'm not, uh, I'm not anti-ceremony, but we need to put it in its place. Next time, um, I'm going to talk about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to then try to wrap it up and basically give you what I understand where we are today in regards to communion, what it ought to mean to us, the freedom we have, the obligations we have, and, and how we would put it all together.